0: I am so excited to have my friend Rev. Angel Kyodo Williams back on the show. She has been bridging the worlds of liberation, love, and justice her entire adult life. Her critically acclaimed book, Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace, it was hailed as an act of love by Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker and a classic by Buddhist pioneer Jack Kornfield. And her book, Radical Dharma, talking race, love, and liberation, it's been inviting communities to have these real, grounded, hard conversations that are necessary to become more awake and aware of what hinders liberation of self and society. Known for her willingness to sit and speak uncomfortable truths with love, Rev Angel notes, love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. And right now, we're all in a moment where we need collective change on every level, personal, interpersonal, cultural, and societal. So Rev. Angel was my guest on the show a number of years ago. That led to an incredible friendship that has been a true gift in my life, and I wanted to invite her back both to explore her personal experience and evolution of thought around identity over the last few years, and also learn from her deeply wise, insightful, and for many, surprising lens on what it takes to step into this moment equipped for the quest for collective liberation. And before we dive in, over these next three weeks, I'll be sharing short stories, just two to three minutes from my new book, Sparked, which introduces you to the 10 Sparketypes or imprints for work that make you come alive. I was so inspired by all of these amazing people. I wanted to share their Spark stories as a kind of short, fun hit of inspiration and insight as we all make the transition into a season of reimagining and for many, reinvention. Let's dive into today's short and sweet Spark story. Elaine Montilla, sage maven, is a sage and has always been one in every domain of her life. In fact, for years, her family has playfully called her a preacher because anytime she learns something, she immediately turns around and tells anyone who will listen what she's discovered. Her friends often ask which degree or certification she's finishing because they know Elaine has an insatiable hunger for knowledge. For her though, it's not just about knowing. Her maven impulse to devour wisdom is largely in service of what she'll do with what she learns. Had her primary sparkotype been the maker, she'd likely tap her growing body of knowledge to create at a higher level. A scientist primary would harness the knowledge to more effectively figure out solutions and puzzles to problems. For years, Elaine could never truly understand why she loved reading and learning so much and also why it never seemed to be enough. With the discovery of her sage-maven pairing... It all made sense. She learns to illuminate. In her personal life, she'd gather girlfriends for a super soul conversation. It was always a joke she shared because I love listening to their struggles and using the knowledge I have to share insights with them and help them see that life is way more beautiful than their minds want them to believe. That same sage impulse to teach, illuminate, and elevate has led her to public speaking and advocating for women and minorities in the tech sector. As a senior executive and primary technology leader at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, Elaine regularly shares insights, ideas, and possibilities with her team of IT managers. Building on her focus on diversity in tech and beyond, she founded 5X Minority, an organization on a mission to make workspaces more inclusive through leadership, education, and mentoring. I come alive, Elaine offered, when I am on stage, or when I answer questions that I know would help other Latinas succeed in tech like me, and I know that the sage in me is guiding me. Hey, if you enjoyed that and are curious about your own sparkotype, grab a copy of Spark using the link in the show notes or just head to your favorite bookseller. Plus, when you order before September 21st, which is when the book is actually published, you'll get some pretty cool bonuses. Okay, on to our amazing conversation with Rev Angel. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
1: right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. So we've known each other for a chunky years now, and when it was first introduced to you through a, a, an old mutual friend of ours, you were introduced to me as Rev. Angel, Zen Buddhist priest, and a whole bunch of other stuff after that. And you know, I've we've talked, and you've know, like been friends, and and I've like you've had this evolution of thought and evolution of self in a lot of really interesting ways. And and I noticed over the last year or so, you started dropping the identifiers or changing them that came after your name, and then. Most recently, it seems like the iteration is just sensei. And I'm really curious about the understory there, like what's been going on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, in Buddhism, there is a story, it's well known. And the story is basically that the Buddha, actually, there are two stories. One is there's two monks, and monks are not supposed to touch women. And so two monks encounter a, a woman, and there's a you know dirty, like uh, you know sea of yuckiness, and so one monk just walks up to the woman and, and picks her up and carries her over this you know gunk and everything, and they get on the other side, and the second monk is looking just dumbstruck. and's like, what did you do? I cannot believe you did that. And he said, "What? What is the problem?" He said. He said, you picked, he said, you picked that woman up. And he said, yeah, but I picked her, put her down and you're still carrying her. So that's one story. And then the second story is this, uh, it's a notion actually of the Buddha's teachings as like a boat. And you, you use the boat to cross over to the shore. But when you get over to the shore, you leave the boat behind. You don't carry the boat around on your back. And so that you cross over the shore of all of, you know, discontent and pain and suffering into a place that's more free and more liberated. And then you leave the boat behind. And so I feel like the identifiers are kind of the the boat. Mm-hmm. And I'm not interested in becoming a boat maker. I don't want to be a shipbuilder. I don't want to institution build, nation build around the idea of Buddhism or Zen or anything. I just want to uh, support people in igniting their passion for their own liberation and for the liberation of the people and and planet and the things that they care about, you know, and the boat gets in the way.
0: Mm, But how so, like, did you Mm -hmm. feel it getting in the way for you personally?
2: Yes, you know we, as a society, we you know especially with this idea of experts, like we really want to pigeonhole people. We really want to say like this is what you do, and now I know what podcast you should be invited to. I know what speaking you should do. I know what places you should go, and you know I think like a liberated life doesn't inhabit those specifics and and those binaries and those containers. And so for me, it's intentional. It's not conscious. It's not like I'm actively going, well, I don't want any (laughs) identifiers. And it's just like, yeah, that doesn't fit. That's not it. That's not it. And so it ends up being this, I just put the things down, right? Like I, I put the woman down and I just, I'm like, great. I carried that. And that was useful. You know, for a while I thought, oh, but the whole idea of like being a renaissance person, you know, and, and that was, you know, or a polymath. And, descri- and I thought like, and you, you just get, and she's like, oh, we've like done all of these things. So what do I do now? I just tell people I'm a polymath. <laughs> and, and it just feels so like lackluster and not the truth. And so I just want to show up and be rather than being pigeonholed. And it has its downsides, of course which is exactly that people don't know how to place you They're you know, or they're placing you in advance, which I think is fine. They just entered the doorway of whatever it is that they are thinking, you know, they're like, oh, she's the activist, right? Like she's the activist. She's the one that talks about spirituality and racial justice. And some people are like, but no, she's the Dharma teacher. And that's the lens that they come in. Or they're like, no, no, I was at this like conference on, on, you know, ecology. And she was talking about the planet and making all of these, you know, relationships to like how we treat the planet, you know? And so I just like, like great, walk in whatever door that you want. I'm on the other side, but I'm none of those doors.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? Cause um, you and I have also had conversations over the years about, you know, like a business about how to actually create sustainable um, ways for us to go out into the world and do the thing that we do. And like you said, on the one hand, those identifiers can make it easier for others to understand like, what's the way that I step into relation with this person? Mm -hmm. Um, Like what should I, and it's it's, to a certain extent, it's about expectations, but then again, those expectations start to become a constraint because if you're much more expansive than that Mm -hmm. and you want to have a conversation with people that is more expansive and wide-ranging, then it, you know, they've said yes to an expectation and then the reality of the, the interaction is different and then you're navigating a whole different dynamic there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the time. And especially with the, you know, the Zen priest, which it's interesting for me, actually what I like the most is what do people pick up? Like I watch hmm. and I go, oh, what do they pick up? And so they'll start with, you know, the thing that is the, you know, most resonant or curious or something. And, and for me, that's fine. I think that's how we, that's how relationship happens, right? It's like, oh, I love, you know, I love the rich tones of your voice. And so that's how I'm entering into this conversation. And and maybe when we're in person with each other, you know, you know, I, I love the way that your eye twinkles or you know that you turn your head to the side and you know and you can fall in love with people you know through that portal through that one singular thing that that catches your eye so I, I feel that that's actually how relationship happens and then we use the crutch of trying to constrain the people within within that right which comes with it not only the you're no longer just getting the experience of them and allowing your relationship to unfold dynamically like I entered into this and and then we have all of what unfolds. But but unfortunately what people then do is also impose their ideas that come from other places, right? And so um and so then I only ask (laughs) get asked Zen questions or Buddhist questions or, you know, or racial justice, you know, in the in the Buddhist world, you know, I'm like the race teacher. And there's a little bit of moment of skirt blown up if I teach classic dharma. And there's also, of course, that that other funky thing where I know in the background, you know, because this is how racial dynamics have worked and the kind of uh, contours of of white superiority and, and, and all of that is some people imagine, they dare not say it out loud, you know, that the only reason that I am a teacher is because of, it's sort of like... Um, Affirmative action, <laughs> like you know, like Buddhist Buddhist affirmative action, and you got to be a teacher because you can't possibly be doing what I do, and so you got in on the race card, and so you know, then then we do that dance a little bit too.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially in certain because I can see different traditions have their cultures and their communities that have sort of. Been built around them in this country, at least. You know, it's different when you you know historically, and it's different in different places. And there's a certain about you know set of assumptions about sort of you know like who's this for, <laughs> and and how do you how do you move into and rise up uh, through the community? And yeah, that's so fascinating. And part of what I was curious about also is, you know, you've had this evolution of being, evolution of thought, and you draw from so many different worlds that part of my curiosity was was this shedding of identifiers also to a certain extent you signaling more publicly that when you show up for me you're going to get my unique synthesis of a vast array of different bodies of work and my own thought and experience in the world and it's going to come out so you know, like don't necessarily show up expecting a Zen Buddhist teaching mm-hmm. because I may take you on a left turn because I I see things differently. And it was almost laying the foundation for the freedom to say like, this is my unique synthesis. This is, this is my, my take. And it's, you know, I'm blending a lot of different things and bringing my own thing into it. So, um, and sort of like creating the freedom to step out of that and step into your own thing.
2: Mm-hmm yeah it's it's really bi directional so at the core of it, it's just that i i don't i was like i i don't do ghettos at all like i can't i can't inhabit any kind of um fixedness it it, it gives me like, you know makes my skin you know feel like the uh, you know crawly creepy crawly and so it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter if it's like kind of like swimming in the sea of, you know, Zen, of the Zen ghetto. And, you know, we I'm, I'm not using the term of, of ghetto in the way that we often, which we sort of like are immediately yeah. relating into socioeconomic status in largely black neighborhoods. That's not what I mean. But I mean the ghetto in the, in the true sense of the word, like this sort of coming together of a, like a, of a likeness um, and, and that you, you inhabit that, that likeness and it's kind of close and, um uh, you know, really rubbing up against each other, and so it, it just doesn't work for me it's never it's actually never been who I am. and you know, business marketing i you know many years ago, my first book so now twenty years ago uh, came out, and there there is a way that you have to you know if you're not speaking to someone, you're not speaking to anyone right in in marketing. and so I wore that cloak for a little while in order to facilitate that particular message and that particular conversation. And yet I'm always drawing from, you know, the many conversations. And even in, you know, which I hadn't remembered, I was, I, I think even how they described being black, which is the first book, you know, it's it it talked about, you know, like, you know, Wu Tang, right? A hip hip hop group, Wu Tang, like meets Zen Zen Buddhism and like that kind of mashup because Um, There's also on the other side, this impulse towards ownership. It's so much a part of uh, our different cultures and particularly these spiritual cultures. And as they've been designed, it's sort of like, okay, now you're one of us. And so we own you lock, stock and barrel. Like, you know, so all of my thinking that, that all of my thinking and, and what I'm drawing from would somehow belong to and solely be of white Western convert Zen Buddhism Is absurd that I left race behind, you know, that I left my, that I left hip hop behind, that I I left misogynist hip hop behind, you know, that all of the things that I grew up in, that I left like queer culture in the village in New York City in the, you know, 80s and 90s behind and it doesn't come through is absurd. And there's, in many ways, it's more likely to happen with me as the kind of outlier, the apparent outlier of you know what Zen Buddhist priests look like, right? They're they're most often white, middle aged, and, and not only male. Uh, they've done a pretty good job with that, but often, most often, white and and middle aged, um, and and also of a you know particular class, far far more often, um, middle to upper upper middle class. And so then, really, anything that's coming out of me <laughs> must be because I got it from them and from some places. And I just pushed back at that all along the way. It was really important. It's important in the sense of, you know, lineage. And it's also important in the sense of recognizing that in in so many ways that that is the nature of, of Black peoples, you know, in America in particular, is that we are jazz, right? We are drawing from the multiplicity of our experiences and pulling from so many things in so many ways not only just the joyful things and wonderful things, but also the pains and the heartaches and the oppressions and the, the the limitations imposed and that we're making music out of it, out of all of that. And that's, I think, one of our unique contributions.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I, I love hearing you describe sort of like the way that you think through it and also the frame that you bring to it. And you brought up like the, all of these different influences and experiences and pieces of who you are. I remember you saying at one point, you know, pretty much- beyond the the dharma of buddhism there's a certain dharma of queerness you know like and and how so much of what you know about liberation about the process about the path comes from queerness and you know that that is a part of the synthesis the the amalgam that is you and yeah uh, so so it's sort of it, it's interesting to hear like Okay, so it's not that I don't identify with all of these. It's sort of I simultaneously don't identify and identify with all everything and so much more beyond that simultaneously.
2: Mm-hmm. And the truth is I think most of us I think that's true for everyone, really. And I think it's the force of culture and and I want to disrupt that. I want to I want to overtly disrupt that and say, you you get to be the 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 whole of who you are. You get to you know, bring all of these things in and you don't have to eschew this part of yourself or leave it at the door in order to belong to this, you know, community, this space, this practice, this, you know, institution, this so on, that, and that we're all enriched for that. We're all more enriched. And, uh, you know, I have this whole theory about, as many people do, you know, about the about the divisions and like what what really underlies the divisions. And for me, um, a major part of that is this allowing of our complexity and that the more that I can signal to people that that this complexity, that my not getting boxed into the, you know, <laughs> like black Yoda, <laughs> like, like I'm I'm like the black queer Yoda, like Zen, and like no, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna riff on things and I'm going to use the cadences that come from, you know. Black church, you know, even though I don't situate myself in black church, I'm still influenced by that cadence and that rhythm and that repetition and the way that I bring, you know, words to things. And, and that I don't have to sit, you know, quietly, stoically, you know, in the Zen cool way. And I do that too. And that all of them are of the same, this of this one piece. And, and I love that you say it because I, I say it all the time. The balance of that is that I belong to, you know, no thing and everything, right? That the entry is into everything and it allows me to move freely amongst things, which, you know, hysterically in a very backwards way is also a very Zen
1: concept. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
0: its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So here's my curiosity around this. So I was the kid when I was in you know, like when I was younger where I could move freely be- between any group, but I wasn't a part of any group. I'd never felt like I belonged to any one thing. And there was a pain of isolation even though I was mm kind of accepted, I was fine in any one group, you know, like, and, and I was, yeah, I could, but I was never the person who got called when the groups came together or did something. I was never, and and I know, you know, like having spoken about this with you over the years, it, it seems like you had a similar experience. Like you, although, more isolated and more, more pushed, isolated, pushed out, yeah. more I pushed think,
2: out. Yeah, far, far, yeah, more yeah. isolated. I was re I was yeah. really painfully aware that I didn't belong.
0: Hmm. Do you feel like that experience or that feeling continues to this day to inform the way that you think through your ideas, your the way that you bring yourself to the world and also the, the way that you, offer ideas and practices and paths to others
2: yeah absolutely i want to extend that runway you know to the young angel that didn't belong in in all of the spaces that i am in and i think it um, it, I, it it it's more that i feel through it like i feel mm. it right it's like i feel it's like you know, tilt the words this way and this way and this way and like turn it like prismatically. So I think I I look back on it and I go, oh, I speak prismatically. I'm turning this slightly, slightly, slightly so that people can find their way into that angle, that little angle. John Kabat-Zinn talks about this orthogonal rotation of consciousness. And I think about that idea a lot in terms of how I language things, which is to say, you know i'll run off to the extremes and then nuance in between and it's it's to break it right so it's to break it of the binaries i feel like binaries are the devil and, and so and so i break it of the binaries and that gives people permission to find their way in and so that absolutely lives with me it's it's not in the background it is it is in the foreground and i feel it i feel the you know even when we're you know zooming everything you know the the person that might be left out and, and then, you know, like tilt the language like a little bit, give them an entry point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard you talk in in different areas and different domains to different audiences. And one of the things I've always marveled at is that you're so, you are so intentional with language and you have this capacity to be stunningly frank and honest and direct and yet at the same time, expansive and inclusive. You know, you can be in a room full of hundreds of white people, you know, and, and have and facilitate a conversation, a retreat a day that is very direct and very honest and with, you know, loaded with hard truths. And at the same time, the way that you it's not just the language, it's your presence. It's your physical, emotional, spiritual presence in a space combined with the way that you're so intentional about language that somehow creates this moment where hard truths seem to land. They seem to, to bypass defenses that I've seen so often go up. And I wonder if you've, I've been in rooms where I felt that, where you're sharing. And I wonder if you, while you're sharing, feel that same thing. Well, you know, I
2: I feel the people,
0: Mm. right?
2: I I am embracing, you know, individual people that I am so certain are as trapped in something that is not our essential nature, and so I want them to be liberated from that, and I hold them. In that space of like, like I, 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 I want this for you, and this is your own work, right? And and so this, like, um, for me, it feels like I, I'm embracing, and and I hold the intention to embrace. I think I uh, benefit from, and this is, you know, has all kind of complex layers to it, of course, but I also I don't want to think from them. I want something. For them, and and that shift in a power dynamic is really critical. It's uh, you know a combination of allowing myself to you know unfold and mature and create enough of a mixed up kind of um, you know. Economic viability that doesn't rely on anything. I'm very intentional about, you know, I don't hold like a job. I haven't held a hell a job, you know, since I was twenty two. I walked out of a, out of an office, I work for Essence magazine, and I walked it I was like, I will never work for someone again. And so I I organized myself to not be uh, which which has a, you know that quality of loneliness, right? like an, an aloneness, to not be dependent on any soul institution or individual for my livelihood, which is has its precariousness, of course, as well, and lack of security in ways. And so all of this then, you know, develops more practice. It's like, okay, I have to shift my notion of what security is. It's like this con- it's this movement of things together. So I have to rethink what security is if I want to be free to hmm. say what I need to say in, and to create the space that I need to, to create and to step into a conversation with people in which I don't want something from them, and, and, and that allows me to be able to speak frankly and clearly and directly, and also to to hold them, you know, really from love. And I and I say that, and people might say like, oh, it's like I don't I don't mean like, because <laughs> there's plenty of like, don't particularly like you, um, but love, right? That that real expansive, universal sense of you are caught, we are caught and I get it. And I get that this is challenging and I, and I can't imagine how painful it is, but I can sit with you here while you walk through it.
0: Mm. The ability to access that. I'm curious about it. I've heard it described, um, especially in spiritual traditions from people who do work around social justice as being resourced
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and that may be through spiritual practice that may be through like contemplative practice that may be through study. Does it feel like when I think about the word resourced, I, I feel like it's, you know, to me, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I am equipped with a tool belt, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, for, for my heart to be okay as I move through something. Um, mm-hmm. But also resourced in what you just described in, in, in the capacity to actually hold love at that level. I have to imagine there's got to be a well of something that allows you to do that, that I, I wonder if many people have.
2: I think we, we all have it, whether we are tapped into it and can get out of the way, You know, do, the, do, the, do the labor of getting out of the way sufficiently to allow it to flow. And, and that you said, well, is exactly you know, like resourced that way, right? We sort of live in a commodified society where resources go to kind of our financial and, and I mean, you can even say the word resources, and people can feel a sense of scarcity. I invite mm-hmm. folks to take a moment right now and see, you know if that word, even right, brings up scarcity. And so I think of re- resourced or resourcing, right? It's like I'm resourcing, and that for me, connotes. A channeling, a tapping into right the well of the the love of the whole universe. It's not, it's not my love, it's not personal love. It's not like I'm having love. Like I love you, Jonathan. Right. And and there's a personal love to it. But that kind of space is a bigger love. I'm surprised by it. Believe me, I have moments being like, whoa, that's that's wild. Um but it's being able to be tapped in. And when I feel, if I, if I feel, when and if I feel myself getting in the way, right, like angel getting in the way of that channel of resourcing, right, that flow, that movement, that energy, that current, I have to have sufficient practice to, first of all, to recognize like, oh, you're slipping in there and getting in the way. Um, And to know what that feels like, right, in order to see all the signals of it and, and then to move. I have to be able to do both, both to recognize it and also to take action. And to do that again and again and again and again. That that critical practice is what I think makes the difference, what I know makes the difference for me. And I think because we, many of us, inhabit a society of ends, right? Like we get to the end of it, that that's one of the the things that challenge people because it's like we want to get spiritual, right? And now that we're spiritual, we think we can just ride the little spiritual horse into the sunset. It's like, check that box. Yeah. Check that box. And so, and then our stuff creeps up on us, you know, and some, you know, some white dude says something, you know, cranky and you know, am I going to keep riding that same spiritual horse? You know, or, or, or have I tripped on myself and gotten the way and got my back up? Right, and and now I'm ready to draw my sword. <laughs> um, and that sword is not—it's not a liberatory sword. You know, it's a like you—you you hurt me, you wounded me, and I want to—I want to hurt you back, sword. And if you don't know the difference of what you're wielding, because spiritual power is a power, it is a power, and you know, like. With great power comes great responsibility. And for me, the responsibility is to be really, really attentive to what it is I'm wielding and for what purpose, towards what end. And there's only ever one end for me. Which is? Liberation.
0: Mm -hmm. Self-awareness has got to be a huge part of that process for all of us. And, you know, because you can't answer any of those questions unless you've developed the practice of tapping in like you said attentiveness you know there's no attentiveness without without some level of awareness Mm -hmm. that reminds you to check in to remind you to ask the question like where's this coming from what's happening inside of me what's happening outside of me and um i i wonder if we're so often offered practices and things to do and exercises and prompts Mm -hmm. um but i feel like outside of really spiritual tradition more than anything else we are not often offered or invited to say okay we also for all of this to actually work we need to cultivate a level of ability to tap into self-awareness on a persistent basis or at least you know like when we on on a pretty regular basis mm-hmm. to actually know what's going on so that we can understand how to respond in a way that we want to, and that's constructive rather than destructive, and yet that that deeper practice, the practices that would slowly over time cultivate the the ability to be more self aware on a persistent basis, I feel like those are so often not addressed, you know. And and I I wonder sometimes whether it's because exercises, prompts, workbooks, things like this, there's a beginning and there's an end, and we can you know, set aside our 23 minutes for the day and do this thing. But the self-awareness practices, it's a long game mm-hmm. and we struggle and we're all really, really bad at it in the beginning and often for a really long time. Not that there's a good or bad, but it's just, we we set expectations about like, oh, I'm going to sit and this is going to happen. And 10 weeks from now, after I do this program, I will have, you know, like had a <laughs> 73% increase in my uh, awareness uh, capacity and it just doesn't work that way and we're wired even if we're introduced to these practices we're so often wired to just not stay with them long enough for mm-hmm. them to cultivate any to cultivate themselves within our beings and, and on a level that would actually provide utility and mm-hmm. but it's so important because it's like it's the foundation for everything
2: mm-hmm. it's it's i mean <laughs> it's essential and it's not enough, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, It's like, totally. it's essential and and it's not enough in that, you know, it's not captured in a moment. So it's essential right. to be able to access self-awareness and then self-awareness a minute ago is not self-awareness now. It It is, un, you know, a constant unfolding. You know, during the pandemic, I was really contending with that, you know, and, and contending with the felt sense of, you know, anxiety, And I developed a practice that I have been, it's something that I had been developing for a while, but I just brought it to a group of people because, you know, I felt like people needed something to work with themselves. And we had no idea that we'd be still doing it. So we started this sit called the No Big Deal Sit. And I introduced this, what I call point meditation, because that same thing that you're saying, it's like, I, I was like, what are we doing here? You know, we have at least in the Zen tradition, right? Like, you know, Buddhist 50, 50 years, 50 plus years, some of the big institutions, you know, Western Zen, Western Buddhist institutions are, you know, just hit their 50 year birthday. So we have 50 years, you know, we have people that have like, you know, um, come into these practices as, you know, teenagers or some of them even, you know, more mature, uh, late, late twenties, excuse me, not teenagers, the late twenties. And it's like, I'm not getting it, right? <laughs> right? So there's not a goal. And there's, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it because there's, there is a purpose. It's not a goal, but it's a pur- there's a purpose. It's like, we're a little missing the mark. And I really contemplated that. And I came to the, the pit, I'll say the, the, the pith conclusion is that we give people all sorts of practices, but underneath, underneath the underneath. We haven't fortified people's ability and commitment, the commitment first, and then the ability to come back to themselves. Mm. There's so much fear, right, in, in inhabiting like what it means to truly be with yourself. There's pain, there's trauma, right? There's really good reasons to simply be uncomfortable in the body. And for me, so many of the original sins, if you will, of all sorts of oppressive systems, situations, is the, the cutting away, the cutting off of people's ability to come back to themselves and trust themselves and trust the the wholeness of their experience, to trust their experience, not, not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or something. And so even... Buddhism that teaches this notion of like, you know, pleasant and kind of a dispassion around it. Hmm. I I feel, I'll just say, you know, in the contemporary language takes too damn long for people to really develop that essential thing without other layers that eventually distract. Right. And so there's like naming things and there's nothing wrong with naming things. But the naming things is not the thing. It's the the essential ability to be able to trust abiding in, within ourselves. That I think is, and it's like it's 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 not even really a meditation. Frankly, meditation is kind of like it, It's like just this natural skill of what it means to be human, and what it means to be alive. At at a very core 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 level and all of everything else is a layer on top of it right all of these other things wounds and pains and so on but if i if i can't trust being myself if i can't trust my experience then i'm lost and everything else is corrupted everything else is corruptible and so i just built the practice based on that right? This sort of like super clean, super straightforward thing. You don't need a meditation cushion. You don't need a bell. You don't need a, and the most important thing is that it's transportable to like, I'm sitting here with you. And that practice is alive and present for me right now, Mm. rather than there's the formal practice, but that I'm actively engaged that it it unfolds as part of how I operate uh, this returning, you know, this returning to myself.
0: Um, It's funny too, because I think about, you know, I've had a sitting practice for probably going on a dozen years now, but it's like you said, it was never about that. <laughs> it's not about how, it's not about how still I get on the mat or how open or compassionate or how much I knew myself on the mat. It's not about like making sure that I like, you know, I'm getting all the extra stars on my meditation app or I'm like, you know, continuing my streak. Although I have to tell you. <laughs> I am as much a like Pavlovian person as anyone else. Like <laughs> the, I I, yeah. something and I'm like hooked <laughs> No, I
2: there's no shame there. I I you know, an app you know, one of the apps like absolutely saved my relationship. I, yeah. I just like that's a whole thing.
0: Um yeah. But you know, it's it's like I think we sometimes lose lose sight of the fact that like we do that so that at least in, in my experience, so that over time it just starts to, and maybe with intention, it happens more readily and more quickly. It just starts to infuse our presence as we move through the day. And we can, like you said, keep returning, keep returning, keep returning. And it almost, it becomes less of an intentional thing and more of just a habit of being. Mm-hmm. Um, that we keep returning to to this this way, this this place of, of openness, curiosity, awareness. And that's why why you know like to, to me, it's not about, you know, increasing like, okay, I'm I'm gonna go from twenty five and over the next eighteen months I'm gonna go up to thirty five mm-hmm. minutes every day. But we live in a culture, I think, where that's a part of it.
2: I think what it is, you know, it's not just it's like a habit of being. It is being. We remember yeah. that actually that is being yeah that is being that 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 abiding, that self-abiding, that being with ourselves, that returning to ourselves, that is being. And the other things have corrupted our sense of being. and then we conflate the other things for who we are, and we get confused. And so we exist in this kind of confusion. So I, what I love about it most is that it's not an accomplishment. it's a returning. It's not yeah. a it's not a an acquisition of like we get this way, but actually we remember who we are. and we remember who we are as we are, and allow for the complexity and develop the courage to be with the complexity of who we are because obviously it's, all, it's not all pretty, you know, and it's not all pleasant. And that fundamental okayness is absolutely critical to the, you know, we're saying this word like spiritual life. It's like to the, to the life life, <laughs> yeah. you know, to the, to the living life to the liberated life, that sense of like a fundamental okayness. Like, yeah, I'm scared in my boots here and underneath the underneath it, like I'm okay. Not I agree, not I, I wish this for myself or the situation, but an okayness that is the, I feel like it's the wellspring of an appreciation of life and everything life is offering us.
0: Yeah, I mean you you reference that in some of the things that keep us from this returning or that sometimes that natural state of presence harbors a lot of trauma, a lot of tra- trauma, shame, wounding, uh pain, hurt, um a lot of like everything and you know, it's saying yes to all of that. Mm-hmm. And being with it and that is terrifying for so many.
2: And it's terrifying. I, I, you know, I think I, am I'm going to go on a limb and say that I think that we're shaped that way for it to be terrifying. Mm. I think our natural state, our most natural state uh, is to, is to actually be to be with life in the way that, you know, um, you know, (laughs) you know, dogs scratch behind the ears and, you know, bite at the thing on their butt, but they're, they're, they're in their lives. And, and our, Consciousness, right? Our self consciousness, which is our, like our gift and also our Achilles heel, uh, shapes us in such a way that we kind of have this reference, right? This referential location that we get to and we turn back around and look at our experience and go, good, bad, good, good or bad experience. Like, was that okay or not okay? Well, actually, it was just sensation at the end of the day. It was just a sensation. And uh, we we get told by society uh, our sense of correlating our sensations with meaning, is where we get all messed up. It's like, oh, I had that sensation. That's an uncomfortable. one? it's actually. Can you get underneath it? It's a vibration. You know, it's uh, it's weird. It's unfamiliar. Uh, but but that but that it's bad right? That you correlate it with like, and that's, that's what fear is, you know, and, or this is, you know, this is now a reason to be anxious and somebody's coming to get me, or this person is going to do this thing, or we're going to have this argument again, you know, whatever it is, um, that we've been shaped, right? And so some of the things that, you know, Jonathan, you say, like, oh, I'll say something that is challenging, but it's been shaped to be challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Conversations, for instance, about race, that's shaping, that's a social shaping, right? And and we're far more able, when we we spoke, you know, years ago in the last podcast, we're far more able, for instance, to even say the words like white supremacy and, and not like all like fall out, you know, and like go run out of the room screaming because we our social, I would say like our our so, so, social biological nervous systems have been toned to be able to manage conversations that we, uh, we were shaped to not be able to manage. So culturally, there was a shaping in, in the society to make conversations about race, right? Conversations about, you know, about misogyny, about like how we deal with women, like To make them not okay, like outside of the, what is that window, right? Like the, something with the window of like what's acceptable to talk about. And it's by design that there are some conversations that like, here's the facts. This is what it is. This is what happened 400 years ago. This happened or, you know, 250 years ago, this, or this is what we did to the indigenous people. And that we can't handle that conversation in our physiological body that gets so uncomfortable. That's shaped. That's not organic. That's shaped, right? And so then when you get to realize that, it's like, oh, I've, I don't belong to myself. Mm. I don't really belong to myself. I'm, I've been told and it's been signaled and it's been you know, whispered and it's been repeated over and over again where I should feel comfortable, capable, able to meet life and where I should shrink away. And I think of nothing else that part of this spiritual journey that was really about like liberating ourselves, you know not not i mean if you want to go to uh, ascend to you know to she, to heaven or the ninth uh, you know hemisphere or something I, I like that's not my business, but to live a, to live a life you know free and comfortable and, and and at ease in your body with all of the trials and tribulations that life comes with, that we we have to turn the corner of a commitment to be willing to meet life as it is. And then to practice, right, unfurling the shaping that has made simply meeting life uncomfortable for us. Right? To like to un- unpack that. And once you get a, it's like, oh, that's not mine. That's not mine. That thing, when you, when you talk about that, particular topic you know whatever it is you know race is a kind of like a big one obviously uh you know money right like we're, well, you know we get crazy about like conversations about money like real conversations about money all sorts of things those quote, quote unquote social taboos they've been shaped and it means that you don't own your life you don't you don't belong to yourself and and when you you, you kind of get underneath enough of those you're like you know what do I want to own my own damn life. Like I want to belong to myself, and we we turn some kind of corner. And I think that the way that we say, "Oh, like that's hard work," like that's hard work, it it changes. Mm. It changes, right? It becomes a, a way of being.
0: Yeah, you just used the phrase "I want to belong to myself," which is fascinating to me because I was, as you were sharing, I was thinking, "What is our impetus to form ourselves like within the shape that's been handed to us?" and and I, you know, I wonder if a lot of that is this, you know, primarily to belong at scale, to belong to something beyond ourselves. And you know, we feel like we have to because if we don't, then we we're effectively outcast and we don't we don't survive. And it's it's this shape or imprint that's been put into us. So I wonder how much that plays a role. And when you use the phrase "belong to ourselves," that feels to me like an unlock key. If in fact that, that earlier assumption is true.
2: It is absolute, absolutely true. It's you know, I mean, through time, that was essential, right? Like you know, we're we're really like frail creatures, you know, like our nervous system's like right on the edges of our skin, and we couldn't survive. You know, the will to live. They say in the Yoga Sutras, like even the even the wise ones cling to life, and so the will to live is one of the things that um, you know make us who we who we are. And so we developed strategies for being able to survive. And of course, we couldn't survive without our tribe, you know, as, uh, you know, early human beings or what we've become as homo sapiens, we couldn't survive. Um, but our brains don't do a good job at differentiating those survival necess- necessities from the, you know, being on the soccer team. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not discerning that way. And so we have the same, like, existential feeling um, and existential crisis. It feels the same in our bodies, you know, at, you know, obviously mediated in terms of levels of intensity, but it's essentially the same. Like, we're, we basically get up to situations where, like, I'm going to die. And, we, and then we're searching immediately for the strategy to not die and then you go further along, and we're preventing the possibility of even feeling that feeling. And so now we're giving up parts of ourselves in order to belong to that tribe and to make sure that that saber-toothed tiger is not going to be able to get us because somebody else is going to you know club them and, and, uh, and then we'll have dinner. Uh, like all of that is in us, and so the the belonging, um, my theory is that. One of the reasons that the core oppressions of our of our times and our, you know, human existence and you know, in our own in our own society, you know, race and so on, is because belonging has been corrupted. Mm. This essential, critical developmental need has been corrupted, and as a result of that, and the, our inability to see it and to recognize it for what it is, uh, you know, you you said it, it's like so we give we we allow ourselves to to be shaped because belonging is so critical it's so necessary and i feel one of the mistakes that we 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 make is when we have conversations about race and you know gender and you know like uh, misogyny and you know patriarchy is is we suggest that this is mere ideology and it's not it's bio sociological and physiological like we are we're literally in shaped in our, not just our heads and our thoughts, right? Our own feeling state and how we respond to you know, situations where we get you know sweaty palms have been shaped. And because we make it an ideology, and this goes back to the conversation about being in a room with like hundreds of white folks, I'm like, oh, you're caught. You've been shaped. And I want you to at least, at the, at the very least, get into a place where you can be able to make your own decisions and I, and I, hold, I hold people in, in the space of grace, if you will, that you at least deserve to be, have an awareness that you have been shaped and you are caught and that your decisions are therefore not your own actually, which is really difficult for us to grasp in a hyper-individualist society that so many of us are actually not making decisions that are our own at all. And I'll just say that, you know, and this notion of belonging to ourselves, which is just so, talk about like not a Zen Buddhist thing, we're always talking about no self. And so I'm just all kind of, you know, um, messing up the program there by saying we have to have an own belonging. We have to have a belonging to ourselves as a fundamental starting point of being able to avail ourselves of any other kinds of spiritual practice development formation. Otherwise we're subject to being, you know, corrupted beyond measure.
0: Mm. Yeah. That land's so true. As, as you're describing it, I had this really bizarre vision of a contortionist trying to fit into like a tiny, tiny cube. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, everything is in the box except, you know, like one shoulder and one arm. And there's mm-hmm. just no way to make it fit in so what do you do you cut it off <laughs> because then it fits and and now you've taken the shape but yeah. what you've given up is a limb mm-hmm. you know and 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 that shows up in all of our lives as, you know in in all different ways you know that's just metaphorically but mm-hmm. you know it's um when you ask that question you know, like what have I stifled? what have I left behind what have I excised from myself in order to take this shape um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are the questions that get us closer sometimes.
2: Yeah, and I think that when, when we're up against the question of, you know, broader social, social issues, you know, the limb is our humanity. Hmm. And that's, that's what we leave behind. We, we leave behind, and I don't, I don't mean that just, you know, colloquially. I mean, we, we leave behind our innate organic responses of compassion. To other people's suffering, we leave behind our sense of, you know, care and concern and connection for people because they don't look like us. That limb is our humanity. And so I always say, you know, don't go and, you know, take up like race training or, you know, go, don't go deal with like the misogyny or patriarchy, you know, that you you know that inhabits your life, or, you know, whatever transphobia, whatever it is, don't go do it for them. Do it for yourself. Do it because you you are committed to reclaiming that limb of humanity that got cut off for you to fit in that box of the corporate office or the, uh, or your, or your family, you know, your, your, you know, your dad, your dad's dad, dad's dad's dad, your mom, you know, reclaim it for yourself. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't come without loss, right? Because uh, depending on where people are, they may not be ready, right? They've been shaped too. And so they may not be ready to go on that journey with you. And a lot of times we have to leave. I'm not saying everybody should run away from their family, but you have to change your proximity, right? To shift your proximity, that kind of leaving. But simultaneously that the healing that you can do for yourself is something that imparts to your whole lineage, to your whole family, to the to the people that have been trapped in you know, ways of, you know, harming women or being, you know, egregiously racist or so on and so forth. And that, that is, you know, perhaps the most <laughs> you know, promising, promising thing is that A, it doesn't have to be everybody. Like, we don't have to kind of go and collect everyone into this great project of fixing everything because that's what happens. Then we're sort of imposing and we're trying to fix people but rather we can do this weird move of both allowing our own personal practice and liberation and unfolding and willingness to, to meet ourselves and, and to, to reclaim our own humanity that it unto itself, and this is what, what happens from the beginning, we are gifting that to the collective. So mm. we gift ourselves. So paradoxically, this Belonging to ourselves allows us to belong and gift to the collective.
0: Yeah. And it's almost like if um, even any sense of belonging that you have without that is, it's actually not you who's belonging. It's the humanity divorced shape that you've assumed that has now been accepted into the collective, which at the end of the day does nobody any good. In fact, it does everybody harm.
2: That's right. And it's, you know, as, oh, you know, I could, I feel it like the, oh, in my chest of facing that, right? turning to face that. And we, we all have our moments of, you know, that thing that we hear, and maybe this is one of them that you're like, oh, right, right. And then it will replicate itself. It's like the Toyota syndrome. You're going to see it everywhere. You're going to be reminded of like, oh yeah, I'm giving this up here and I'm giving this up here and I'm giving this up here. So I I advise you to be gentle with yourself and in a society that has taught us, you know, in hyper individual terms that everything is our fault, right? It's like, it's all ours and it's all individual choice and so on. That is not, you know, that you have been shaped. And so it's not your fault and it is your responsibility that as you recognize these places that you have left a piece of yourself behind, that you are the one that then has the responsibility while it's not your fault. You are the one that has the responsibility to reclaim yourself so that you can give yourself more wholly to your, to your lover, to your parents, to your children, to you know, your partner, to your family, even if they don't understand you even if they don't understand and they don't agree that, that you're giving your whole self is a gift back to them.
0: Hmm. That feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. Um, I asked you this question a long time ago, but I'm going to ask it to you again. Cause apparently I've heard people change <laughs> <laughs> once in a while as we sit together in this, Cross-country container of a good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up
2: for me? uh, To live a good life really means to be able to return to myself with grace, with ease, with consistency, and allow for the the whole of who I am to unfold.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Bishop Michael Curry about the healing power of love. You'll find a link to Bishop Curry's episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, go ahead and click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. Oh, and if you appreciate the work we've been doing here at Good Life Project, then go ahead and check out my new book, Spark. It reveals some incredibly eye-opening things to you about your very favorite subject, you, and then it shows you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Thanks so much. See you next time.